Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF Valley. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, special welcome. If perhaps you're worshiping with us maybe for the first time uh, in town with uh, visiting family and friends for Thanksgiving, glad you're here. Glad if you are, if this is your church and you're pretty much here every week, we're great to see, it's great to see you as well and everyone in between. Uh, I do trust and pray that you will have an enjoyable Thanksgiving. Hopefully it's uh, a time of uh, rest and relaxation. Even more than that, it is a time to actually give thanks. Uh, amen. We have a lot to be thankful for. Please pray with me as uh, we jump in here to the passage that Kelly just read for us this morning. Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for what brings us here. And Lord, thanks for giving me the great privilege of opening up your word. I don't deserve to preach. certainly don't deserve to be a pastor at a church like this, filled with people who really do love you. So it is a great joy to be able to open up your word. I need your help. Father, we need your help. Remind us this morning that, oh Lord, you are real, you are active, you can be trusted, and you are our greatest treasure. So Christ, may you be glorified in, particularly in the next hour or so, would you speak through me? Use this time to build up, to edify the saints, and to mature disciples. Help us to become more like Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, our ruling King. Give us grace for this task, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you just heard Callie read the text, and so here's my question. What stands out to you? What do you see highlighted? What maybe grabbed your attention? These are the last few minutes of the earthly life of Jesus. And so perhaps if you grew up in the church, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, you've read your Bible, you, you probably are familiar with this text. If you watched at some point Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, well, this is what is depicted. So you're probably familiar with it, but the question still stands, what really grabs you? What, what is this text actually about? And to be very honest, I had some trouble putting this sermon together, please don't leave. And, and I had some trouble this week, not because when I prayed it down from heaven last night at nine, nothing happened. I don't do that. And not because I ran out of time, and certainly not because there's nothing in this text to preach. In fact, it was the exact opposite. The more that I read this text, the more that I meditated on it, the more that I asked the Lord for help, the harder it became. Because there were more questions to think about. There were more uh, facts to examine. There were more considerations. And typically when I set out to preach a text, I'll have the Bible open and then I'll have just a legal pad of paper and I just start scribbling down. I just write down observations and maybe insights and I underline things and I scratch things off and it's just, it would, it, there's no way that I could possibly preach from that because you'd look at it and you'd think, that is ridiculous. 
But the more that I studied this and immersed myself in this, the more things I had underlined and the more things I had, make sure you talk about this. Uh, Don't miss this. This is super important. And so by Thursday at noon, I wanted to get Pastor Dave to preach this. (laughs) And I just wanted to eat pumpkin pie. Now maybe at another time, I'm going to end up using 80% of the stuff that's not making into this sermon. But let's talk about, by God's grace, what actually did make it into this sermon. And so as I studied this passage, brothers and sisters, two things, two immediate things stood out. Number one, it's really verse 24. And it's really just the first few words of verse 24. And they crucified him. That's all Mark says about the actual crucifixion, the physical act of crucifixion. He just gives us four words. And they crucified him. Now we might wonder, Mark, are you, did you miss something here? Because the whole gospel of Mark, and we've seen this in our studies, the the whole gospel of Mark really has been leading to this point. You could actually argue from the very first verse, Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells us there that he's going to recount for us the story, the good news, the story of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. All roads lead to the cross. Jesus has come to die. And he's come to die for us. And all the way through, Mark has given us reminders of this, of the mission of Jesus, of why he has come to earth, how everything that happened in his life is is pointing in a certain direction. It is leading to a very specific end. And the end is the cross, where Jesus would make atonement for the sins of all mankind. And yet, as Mark shows us here, and really all the gospel writers When they speak of the actual physical crucifixion of Jesus, the details are minimal. There's actually no in-depth analysis at all. Mark just presents the facts. No overt sentimentality. No sensationalism. Mark gives us four words. And he was crucified. Now, we know, you've probably read those studies in the last several decades. In fact, there have been very reputable medical studies that show us just how horrendous the physical act of crucifixion really was. I mean, the cross weighed usually well over 100 pounds. The feet are nailed to the beam. The hands are nailed to the cross beam. And the executioner would make sure that those six-inch nails, when they're pounded in there, that they avoided any major arteries. So that the person who was crucified would feel the maximum amount of pain. So that they wouldn't die quickly. In fact, it might take days before the heart finally gave out. Most criminals would die naked on the cross. And it was gruesome. Even, Even the Roman pagan philosophers spoke out against crucifixion as being unduly harsh and barbaric and hideous. And if you know anything about Roman philosophers, that's saying a lot. And the gospel writers don't focus on that, unlike Mel Gibson in his movie. Now, of course, Jesus suffered immense physical pain, no doubt. He suffered in ways that 
frankly, we don't really want to talk too much about. We don't want to linger too much over those details. It was horrific and horrendous in every sense of the word. But Mark does not give us those gory details. And he doesn't draw attention to the specific pain of Jesus here at his crucifixion. All he says is four words, and he was crucified. So the focus for Mark is, it's actually not on the physical pain of Jesus. Well, what is his focus then? What does he actually want us to pay attention to this morning? Well, this is the second thing then that stood out to me. It's how Jesus was mocked and shamed. It's not simply that Jesus was killed. It is that he is thoroughly rejected, mocked, scorned, ridiculed, and despised by almost everyone around him. Jesus is publicly humiliated. He's publicly shamed by almost everyone who is there on this morning. And so what Mark underscores, church, what he, what he underlines in this passage, it's not the pain of the cross, it's the shame. It's the shame of the cross. I don't know that Mark had a white legal pad, but I feel like if he did, he would have been circling that and underlining that and saying, don't miss this, talk about this. It's the shame. Now we have seen signs of this impending shame and mocking of Jesus really just in the last few chapters here, haven't we? Judas has betrayed him. His disciples have fallen asleep in the garden. They abandon him. His best friend Peter denies him. The council plots to kill him. The crowds hate him. The chief priests and scribes revile him. Remember last week, Pilate, the coward, he releases a murderer instead of Jesus. And the crowds hate him so much, they look at Jesus and say, yeah, that guy. Kill that guy. We want him to be crucified. And here in our passage in verses 16 through 32, Jesus is mocked, and he is scorned, and he is shamed in ways that frankly really do make it hard to read. No doubt you're all familiar with that whimsical children's nursery rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones. How does it go? And that's a lie. It's false. Yes, sticks and stones do break bones. But you know what else? Names actually do great damage to the soul. Names that hurt are not just the good-natured teasing and the ribbing and, you know, that maybe brothers and sisters would do or even among spouses. I mean, it comes from a place, they actually care. They actually love you. That's not what is going on here with Jesus. The names that hurt, the names that hurt you deeply are the names that come from a person who at least in that very moment, in that moment, they hate you. They revile you, detest you. And those are the names that it's very easy for people like us to remember. It's like they... They have a way of sticking to us like Velcro. And that kind of belittling and name-calling and mocking and verbal shaming cuts much deeper, lasts a whole lot longer than a broken toe or a bruised hand. And the truth is, we're all guilty. In some way, the truth is, in some way, we have mocked and shamed and ridiculed others. 
and we have also been the recipients of someone else's. So here's what I want you to get a hold of, brothers and sisters. No matter how bad this morning your story of shame and humiliation may be, it is not as bad as what we read here in this text. And no matter what your story of shame or embarrassment or just ridicule or reviling might be this morning, it is not so bad that Jesus does not have power and authority or love or compassion or grace for you to actually change you, to help you, and to encourage you. So I want to look at these multiple scenes here. And there are multiple scenes that describe for us the mocking shame that Jesus endured. Four scenes of shame. Here's the first one, scene one. The soldiers mock Jesus. The soldiers mock Jesus. I'll read verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple clock. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. What brings a whole battalion of men? We're talking about 600 Roman soldiers. What brings them together on this day? Let's have some fun with Jesus. I mean, these soldiers perfected the art of mockery. In fact, their actions here mimic what they would say to Caesar as Caesar returned home conquering, victorious in battle. Except the only problem is it's not Caesar who's victorious. And they're looking at Jesus thinking, you're not victorious. Because here Jesus has been scourged. He's barely alive. He's dripping blood. Skin is in tatters, and these Roman soldiers play dress-up with him. Here you go, your highness. Here's your robe. Put the crown on him. Oh, look at that. It fits perfectly. Some king you are. And repeatedly, these soldiers salute Jesus. King of the Jews, that's what he says he is. I don't know what kind of king that is. Fine. He's king of the Jews. Of course he's king of the Jews. They strike him, verse 19, they spit on him. I'm not aware of any culture on the face of the earth where spitting in one's face is anything but a deep sign of contempt and scorn and actually vile hatred. And maybe some of you had that experience. Someone at one point spit in your face. It's hard to envision a worse insult. That doesn't really stop these soldiers. They appear to be on a roll. You can imagine one of them saying, you know what we should do? I got a, I got a good idea. Hey, guys, on the count of three, all 600 of us, you know what we should do? We should all bow down. I mean, he's a king after all. One, two, three, and they all bow down. They pay homage to him. They kneel before Jesus. Obviously not in true worship, but in public shame and humiliation. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, such as they were. 
And they led him out to crucify him. Jesus is barely breathing, mostly naked. Pilate's around. He's high-fiving these other Roman soldiers. He's doing exactly what they want him to do. Good job. Keep up the good work, man, and make sure everybody sees this. Evidently, the mocking of Jesus here is a great team-building exercise for these Romans. Morale building. It's great. All of these soldiers are involved in the mocking and the shaming of the sinless son of God. That's the first scene. Here's scene two. Simon of Cyrene. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now we read that and we think, okay, we could use a little bit of good news in an otherwise awful passage. We have a good guy, Simon, amidst a hundred of hundreds of bad guys. Mark tells us that this is Simon of Cyrene, that is from North Africa. And it's a nod there. Mark is saying, well, that among many things, Simon was a black man. And his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, were early leaders in the church. In fact, Paul, Romans 16, uh, sends his greetings to Rufus. That's one of Simon's boys here. So it seems like, and in, in again, an otherwise just shameful story, there seems to be a brief ray of light here. Simon comes to the aid of Jesus. Yet even that kindness is used to mock Jesus. We don't know all the details here, but obviously these Roman soldiers are looking at Jesus thinking, man, this guy's not going to make it. He needs some help. Hey, who do we got? There's Simon. And, and the word there is conscripted him. Simon, you do it. This, we got to make sure this guy gets to the hill. He's got to get up the hill. He's not gonna, so Simon, you got to carry this guy's cross. Well, where's the shame? Men were supposed to carry their own cross. But Jesus couldn't. He didn't have the strength to carry his cross all the way to Golgotha. Jesus is so frail and weak that some other guy now has to do it for him. Some king he is. He can't even carry his cross. Now these soldiers could have said, look, let's, he's not going to make it. Let's just kill him here and let's be done with it because remember, tea time is at 11. But they wouldn't do that. Why? Because for Rome and for these pagan soldiers, crucifixion is the goal. They want to hang, they want to make sure Jesus is still alive so they can hang him up on the cross so that everyone can see. For Rome, crucifixion was their glory, it was their majesty, it was a sign of their power. It wasn't something to be ashamed of. Far from it. It wasn't something to be repented of, it was something to glory in. And so the more public, the more humiliation, the better. They want to make an example out of Jesus. So get this guy and make sure that he makes it. Scene three. Jesus is crucified and he's mocked some more. It's verses 22 through 25. Jesus is crucified and he's mocked some more. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should 
take. Now there are a couple of they's. There's three they's here in these next few verses, starting at verse 22. The first they, uh, they brought him to the place. Well, those are the Roman soldiers. They bring Jesus to the place of crucifixion. Mark paraphrases this as the place of the skull. Our word Calvary comes from really the Latin translation of Golgotha. The second they, verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. It's quite likely these were, there were women who had gathered around at the cross. They're witnessing this and they, they offered Jesus basically the equivalent of a painkiller. To, to ease the pain, something. But most importantly, Jesus doesn't take it. And then there is the they in verse 24. They crucified him. Again, that's, those are the Roman soldiers. And you know what they did after they crucified him? Then they played a game. Soldiers have no sympathy or compassion for Jesus. And what could only be described as really the, the highest form of degradation. While Jesus is dying on a cross, these soldiers are throwing dice at the foot of the cross, bantering around about, hey, why don't you take, why don't you take those clothes? I'll take that. I mean, Jesus is hoisted up on the cross, and right below him, a drinking game breaks out. Everybody gets in on the fun. Everybody's mocking Jesus. And all of this is, well, it's how the scriptures are fulfilled. None of this is a surprise. This should give you great confidence in the Bible. Every time you open up this word, you can trust every last word of this text. Everything that you read, including the parts that are really hard to read. But this is all in fulfillment of dozens and dozens of Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53. Let me just read Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Well, that's exactly what's happening, isn't it? The wild dogs are killing the sinless lamb of God. Just as scripture indicated, there's no mercy, there's no compassion, there's violent hatred and mocking. They're playing a game as the Son of God dies. Here's scene four. The mocking doesn't end. The mocking doesn't end. This is verses 26 through 32. The shaming of Jesus doesn't end. Verse 26, you know what we need to do? We need to give him a sign. Let's just stick up a sign. What do you, let's put up king of the Jews. Great. That's what he says he is. That's the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. King of the Jews. I mean, what kind of king is crucified between these two guys? Some king. But yeah, put it up. That's great. Even strangers. Verse 29. Mark gives us that detail. Isn't that interesting? Even strangers. Those who are passing by. They get in on the mockery. Verse 29. Those who passed by by derided him that's the word blasphemo where we get our word blasphemed him they blasphemed jesus these are people who don't know anything about anything 
They're just walking by the side of the road and they see this. What do they do? They join in. They blasphemed him. And when scripture talks about blaspheming, this is not looking at Jesus and saying, oh, what a poor guy. What a knucklehead. This is harsh, cruel, vulgar words. And I'm not trying to sensationalize this either. But when these passerbys are blaspheming Jesus, they are saying the F word, the S word, and everything in between. You can tear, you're going to tear down and rebuild this temple, Jesus? Why don't you try saving yourself, you fill in the blank. You know, it's one thing to have people who know you, mock you, and shame you, and belittle you. It's another thing to have complete strangers who are just walking by tear you down and scorn you. It's kind of like watching, and I know we've all watched these, you know, you, you watch 10 seconds of this video and you're recoiled. You see those videos of you know, a, a group of, sometimes they are, you know, teenagers who they're, they're, they're walking in downtown New York or wherever it is and they tackle an elderly man with a cane and steal his stuff and they run off. And you look at that, like, doesn't something inside of you go off when you see stuff like that? I mean, those kids are punks. They don't know anything of the life that this man lived and here they are just running over him, stealing stuff, tackling him. They're treating him with such disdain. That's what's happening to Jesus here. These passerbys, they don't know anything about anything. They're just getting in on the fun. Maybe the only thing worse for Jesus here, at least at this point, is if church people also got involved. Well, we actually have that here too. Verse 31, the chief priests and the scribes These are the religious elites. These are people who know their Torah. These are people who taught the Torah. These are the folks that would stay after church in the temple and they would uh, invite people to come and have questions because they knew all the answers. And so they're noticeably quiet here, but not anymore. Verse 31, it's their turn to mock Jesus. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Yeah, hey, Jesus, you, you healed others. At least you claim to. Maybe you should just think about healing yourself. I mean, unless you can't. Some Messiah you are. I mean, you call yourself the Christ. Well, okay, we, we got a few minutes. Go ahead and come down from the cross. We're waiting. Verse 32. Here's really the capstone. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Even the two guilty robbers hanging on either side of Jesus, they mock him. They scorn him. They belittle him. I mean, how humiliating and evil is this? I mean, here's, here's your mugshot, people. On this side is a rapist. On this side is a murderer. And your mugshot right in the middle. That's what's happening to Jesus here. In fact, Luke 22 records... That Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. That is, he was counted as a transgressor. So he's got a bad guy here and a bad guy here, and his mugshot is right in the middle. Even the guilty ones on the cross mock the innocent one. 
And we know from Luke 23 that one of the robbers used his second to last breath, maybe his last breath, to actually repent. And we praise God for that. But that doesn't stop them from hurling their insults and blaspheming the Son of God. Was there ever a man so unjustly mocked by his enemies? Was there ever a man just so utterly abandoned by his friends? Was there ever a man who deserved so much better but endured so much worse? Church, this is where we we have to remind ourselves that Jesus is the sinless Son of God. He's pure, righteous, altogether holy. Jesus never cheated anybody. He never lied. He never told a half-truth. Never manipulated the facts a little bit so that He would come out looking a little better and others would look far worse. He never ridiculed anybody. He never shamed anyone. He never lusted after anything. He was never guilty of a passing jealous thought. In fact, on the contrary, Jesus cared for the poor. He lifted up the weak. He pronounced the unclean clean. He cast out demons. He healed the leper. He gave sight to the blind. He made the cripple walk. He brought back the dead to life. And in fact, in what is probably the most damning thing that has ever been said of Jesus, this Jesus is a friend to sinners. That's good news for us. Because that means that Jesus is your friend. And he is mine. If anybody rightly deserves praise, well, it's Jesus. I mean, he deserves every accolade, every applause, every ounce of appreciation, every last ounce of worship that we could possibly ever give to him. He actually deserves that. I mean, Jesus deserves a medal to be hung around his neck. Jesus deserves to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Jesus deserves to be awarded the Presidential Medal of Honor. But he was mocked, shamed, and ridiculed, and spit on, and reviled, and hated, and condemned by inferiors by sinners, by everybody around him who got in on the fun of shaming him. Nobody was treated with such little dignity as this man who deserves so much honor. Nobody was disgraced like Jesus was, even though he deserved deserved everybody to bend the knee and worship him as the true king that he is. And so why is all this here? Again, we ask that question. I mean, did Mark record all this, the public humiliation and shame of Jesus, so that we would all leave here depressed? Are we just supposed to feel sad for Jesus? Do we we just have pity? 
I mean, if, Mark, if that was the point, I think Mark could have done a far better job, frankly. Mark, if you just want us to feel sad about Jesus, give us those gory details. Give us the blow-by-blow blow here on exactly what happens in the crucifixion, how those nails drive through and separate joints and tendons and flesh. But he doesn't do that. Because, brothers and sisters, this is here to show us not only that Jesus bore our sins on the cross, but that Jesus bore our shame on the cross as well. And shame is all around us. Shame is everywhere. Shame is inside of us. There are two kinds of shame. There's actually, and I'll call this a good shame, there is a shame that actually you and I should feel. Now, in our highly therapeutic and psychologized culture, we don't like to think about that. In fact, you start talking about, hey, there's actually a good shame, and you're liable to be cut down. But there is a good shame. There is a shame that you and I ought to feel when you sin against a holy God and you are, in fact, guilty. Our Bibles over and over speak about those who do the opposite, those who just give in to sin, give in to wickedness, and they no longer feel any shame at all. Jeremiah 6, 15 Jeremiah there is talking about the abomination of Israel, how Israel keeps sinning, and he says they don't even know how to blush. They don't even know how to blush on their sins. When you sin and you are guilty against God, you are supposed to feel shame. That is, in fact, the very kindness of God. That is, that is him drawing you back to yourself. That is, that is his grace given for you so that you would not shipwreck your life and keep sinning. So that you actually be led to repentance in him, faith in him. You do not want to be the kind of person who no longer blushes at your sins. You do not want to be the kind of person who feels next to nothing because your conscience is so seared and sullied that all you can do is yawn at your transgressions. That's the good kind of shame. The kind of shame that leads us to Christ. There's a second kind of shame, and this is a shame that you shouldn't feel. It's misplaced shame. So it's not tied to any objective guilt or your actual sins. It's the shame that you experience that is actually no fault of your own. It could very well be the shame that you live with daily from being abused as a child or perhaps as an adult. It's that overwhelming feeling of humiliation that, that interior monologue that says, I am dying a slow death now. And that can happen in all kinds of situations. I'm not as pretty as this girl. 
I'm not as smart as this guy. I didn't land the job. I got a C minus on this exam. I, somehow I cannot keep a clean house. I can't get anywhere on time. I'm a terrible dad. I'm a miserable mom. And on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. You feel shame, but it's, it's not directly tied to your objective sin. It very well may be tied to other sins against you. So many of us here live with that low-level sense of shame. It's not easy to forget. You just don't get over it. I was sitting with a middle-aged man. We were having coffee. He was having coffee. I was having manly tea. (laughs) It's an important clarification. But as we talked, through many, many tears, he told me how his father routinely mocked him as a child, lasted well into his teenage years. My friend doesn't have to try to remember those words. He wears them every single day. He told me the phrases verbatim. And so his struggle is really to add to his burden. Then he has this, again, crushing sense of failure that if only I was a better Christian, if only I read my Bible more, if only I was more faithful, then my shame would just go away. And in one of our meetings, he actually just looked at me and he said, very, very honestly, he said, Jeff, sometimes I wish my father actually would have just beaten me physically so that I wouldn't have to hear his words ringing in my ear 40 years later. Now, he's not minimizing, and I'm not minimizing physical abuse. Some of you know that. You know that all too well. It's that shame, this second kind of shame, that shouts, You're not worth it. You're a disgrace. You're unacceptable. You are unclean. You are unworthy. Why would anyone care about you, least of all, Jesus? Shame is all around us, and it is in us. About a month ago, I went with JT to a Spokane Chiefs hockey game. I think they were playing Brandon. Halfway through the first period, a guy from Brandon gets a penalty. He skates over to the penalty box. The penalty box opens, and then everybody in unison yells, shame, shame, shame. It's even on the jumbotron, right in center ice, in case you forget the big idea. Shame, shame, shame. And look, as a hockey fan, i got to say this. I have have been blessed. I've been fortunate. I've watched a lot of hockey games in person, everywhere from L.A. to Boston and many arenas in between, many professional games. But only here in Spokane, (laughs) when an opposing player gets a penalty, does the whole crowd stand up and yell, shame, shame, shame. Like, what is wrong with you people? And then I sat down, (laughs) and I turned to my son, JT, and I go, you know, that'd kind of be funny. Like, next time your sister sins against you, we should do (laughs) That would not be funny. But it's everywhere, even at a hockey game. But brothers and sisters, shame is no laughing matter. And you can't just get over it or move beyond it because you want to. So we need a savior. For both kinds of shame. The shame that you should feel over your sins. 
and the shame that you shouldn't. And Jesus frees us and helps us with both. How? Well, we need to start with a robust, gospel-centered approach to both kinds of shame. Here are the building blocks. Number one, the gospel assures us that through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection from the dead, you actually can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. Your real guilt and your real shame over your real sins. You know what Jesus has done? They're nailed to the cross. So you don't bear them anymore. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. On the cross, the root of all your sins has been severed at the source. Let me just ask you this. What are the chances? Just go with me on this. What are the chances that this week you're going to sin? How about on Thanksgiving Day? Wow, Kathy, you did raise your hand. God bless you. (laughs) Wasn't looking for a show of hands, but it helps us to know how to pray. Everybody pray for Kathy this Thursday. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Your reward is in heaven. Oh, that's so rich. That's great. We're all trending in that direction. So here's the good news. On the cross, when Jesus died, all of your sins, yours too, Kathy, past, present, and future are on Christ. And all of his righteousness, his perfection is given to you. Now that is the gift of God. That is the beauty of the gospel. You will not hear any better news, but you have to receive him for yourself. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that on the cross, Jesus so identifies with you and with me. He so identifies with sinners who sin, with sinners who deal with the shame of our sins, that he died in the most shameful way possible. And he did that so that people like us could then be cleansed and forgiven and made righteous. I mean, you want something to be thankful for this week? It goes way beyond turkey and family. In Christ, he has declared you righteous. You can be forgiven of all your sins. And you know why? It is precisely because Jesus did not save himself on the cross. It is precisely because Jesus did not come down from the cross that you can actually be forgiven of all of your sins and that you can be saved. How do we deal rightly then with this second kind of shame? Again, we're we're talking about here the shame that's not maybe tied to your objective sin or, or, or any guilt, but this shame that oftentimes is caused by others who have sinned against you or perhaps just by your inherent weakness. Church, the gospel is not just for people struggling with sin. The gospel is also for people struggling with shame. And here's the good news of the gospel. The gospel assures you that your shame, your present sense 
of shame is not the end. It is not the end of you. It is not the end of your life. It is not the end of your story. Because into your shame, Jesus enters. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now get this. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we read another verse, we are to take encouragement from this. Don't become weary uh, when, you are, when people sin against you. But what does it mean that on the cross, Jesus despised the shame? Well, it means a whole lot more than on the cross, Jesus thought, this isn't good. I don't really like this. No, quite literally, to despise, it means to count as nothing. To regard it as unworthy of notice or attention. Literally to look down on something as worthless or negligible. So on the cross, Jesus counts his shame. All the humiliation, all the ridicule, all the mocking, all the scorn, the vile hatred as of no account. He despised it all. And we say, well that's good for Jesus. How did he do that? And how do we do that? Here's how. He despised it all, counted of as no account. How? For the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. Church, I think what that means, I think what that means is that the only way to deal with your present shame in this life is to believe in your eternal happiness in the next. So you and I have got to believe with all of our hearts that on the other side of shame is unspeakable joy and everlasting gladness for all eternity. No matter how dark and perverted and awful the earthly days might be. On the other side of shame there is inexpressible joy. So we live as Jesus lives. 1 Peter 2, 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let me read that again. This is what he did on the cross. This is what he did here in Mark chapter 15. He continued entrusting himself to who? To God, his heavenly Father, who judges justly. So the key to destroying shame is that, is that belief that this is not the end. This is not the end of you. This is not the end of your story. There is, in fact, irrepressible joy for those who belong to Christ, and there is a just judge for those who live apart from him. So you despise your shame. You count it as unworthy. Why? Because you know that there is a righteous judge. And that righteous judge will either punish sins on the cross, he will punish lawbreakers in hell, and if you belong to him by faith, there is joy for you for all eternity. All eternity. That's the game changer. 
Jesus is the game changer. So this is why one author writes this, let this land on your heart as we close. Now we can face shame from a stronger place. A place where sin cannot pull us under by lies about our unworthiness. Jesus stands up for us. He stands for us and he stands in our place. We are worthy of love and belonging, not because we have made ourselves worthy, but because God has loved us into his kingdom. With this unshakable worth, the church has hope of being a community of truly, deeply, wholehearted people. If, if sin cannot keep us from God's love, shame certainly cannot either. Your shame, brothers and sisters, is not the end. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, some of you have deep, deep shame, maybe this last week, over your sins of this last week. Some of you may still deal with, like my friend, sins done, perpetrated against you decades ago. In Christ, your shame does not get the final word. Do you know why? Because Jesus does. Jesus has tasted all there is to taste of the shame, the judgment, and the reality of death on a cross. And if your faith is in him, then shame no longer has a valid claim on your identity. That's why Paul could write in Romans 10, 11. Everyone, do you know what he means there by everyone? That means you and me. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So we can freely confess. We ought to freely confess. This this might be your first prayer this day and this week and on Thanksgiving Day. Christ has removed my shame. Brothers and sisters, behold your God. This is our God.